Well, it is really great to be back with you today. My heart is full, mostly because I get to see all of you and see your smiling faces and be back opening the Word with you. We had a wonderful time in Tennessee with family. We had a wonderful time in Atlanta, Georgia with the Grace Brethren Conference, and a lot of good stuff happened. There was a lot of, a lot of good teaching, a lot of good interaction around ministry and with people, and a lot of laughter and a lot of tears, actually. Um, I, I saw some tears while I was in Tennessee. I, we, were, I, we did something that we haven't done in 22 years of marriage while we were in Tennessee. We tubed down a river. The whole family, we got these big old inner tubes. It was awesome. But it had been raining, and there was a lot of water and a lot of rocks, and it was pretty dangerous. My brother-in-law got a big gash on his back. He didn't cry. But we saw this one couple that had gotten separated from each other. The guy has two big inner tubes. His wife is behind him with no inner tubes. She is going hysterical. He is losing it. He's panicking. And um, we helped them and all that, but there were a lot of tears. And um, one, I was even going over at one point, and I got hit on the head with a rock. And so if there's something weird about me after, on my return, everything was perfect when I left. So I, if there's anything wrong with me, it could be from that. But anyway, I had some of my own tears. Not, I didn't cry from that, but I cried yesterday briefly because we took my oldest uh, son, our second oldest child, my only son, to college. And as we were leaving his room, I was kind of tearing up, and, and I said to him, I said, hey, Michael, you're going to be okay? And he's like, yeah, are you going to be okay? <laughs> so pray for dad. I also had a few tears while I was watching a movie on the way home, on the flight home from Tennessee. Uh, they were showing the movie 42, which is the movie about Jackie Robinson breaking the color bar- barrier in Major League Baseball in the 1940s. And um, today I really want to share with you something that God has put on my heart regarding how he wants to break down barriers to the gospel in our hearts, in this church, and in this community. So I want you to open your Bibles and turn to James chapter 2. And if you're able, stand with me to read God's word. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. And let me just warn you, James 2, 1 through 13 is about things we don't usually talk about. We don't usually discuss these things or admit to them, but it deals with that little gap between what we say we believe and what we actually do, how we actually live. And I'll tell you, James, just like his brother Jesus, didn't pull any punches, and we are blessed for it. We get the truth. God wants us to love Jesus so much that we want more than anything to do what pleases him so that his church would grow. What we're going to read here is about what Jesus wants for his church. It seems like everyone and their brother has an idea of what the church should be like today. But this is about what Jesus wants. James chapter, one, James chapter 2, starting at verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, 
Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are not they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment let's pray lord god we thank you for your word we thank you lord that it is strong and we pray lord that you by your spirit would would teach us today lord where we need to be convicted of our sins lord convict us where we need to be comforted lord comfort us where we need to be challenged challenge us lord bottom line please have your way with us today we pray in christ's name Amen. Please be seated. It's true that it seems like everyone and their brother has an idea of what the church should do today, what it should be, what it should do. But James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 is about what Jesus wants for his church. It is about us, it is about them, it is about you, it is about me, it is about us as a church. It's about our hearts, it's about our lives, our households, our common life together as an assembly. This is about needing to be more linked to the Lord Jesus Christ and to each other and to our neighbors. It's about what it truly means to be human and live in Christ with all of our foibles and fears, all of our flaws. And we all know them all too well, don't we? It's about how God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness in the gospel, the Bible tells us we don't lack anything that God wants us to have. But this is about us being more fully aligned with Jesus and the gospel. Now, I have never been a very big fan of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I watched it when I was a kid, the 1964 version, the little animated thing. I watched that. But there was this 2001 animated feature film that I did not see, but I'm going to use the title of. It was called Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and the Island of Misfit Toys. Now, the Island of Misfit Toys was the place that all the broken toys went. All the toys that were unwanted and inferior went to that island. See, that's what we do with people. We shun them, we isolate them, we isolate from them even. People who aren't like us, people who might be different. We put them on a proverbial island. So my title today of this sermon, Are They Welcome Here, is appropriate, it's applicable, painfully pertinent, it's relevant to where we live. 
And my grandpa, my dad's dad, came to the U.S. from Italy. 1913, he was 15 years old. He came over with his, with his cousin, not with his family. In those pictures, he's the short guy on the right. His name was Michael Shera. I'm named after him. He didn't speak very much English. Back then, Italians were considered oily and unclean. I remember being called a WAP when I was in elementary school in Downey. I didn't know what it meant. My dad told me it means without papers. Because a lot of the Italians came over and didn't have papers. By the way, this is not a sermon about immigration. This is not a sermon about uh, refugees. But we, we ought to reach out to everyone with the gospel. But it makes me wonder, because I don't know the answer to this question, did anybody show my grandpa Jesus? He comes over to America, doesn't speak any English. When he lived with us for, for a while as a kid, he really couldn't talk to me very well. Did anyone show him Jesus? It also makes me wonder about if there's anyone that I would not want to welcome. Is there anyone that you would not want to welcome? You say, you know what? I don't like the way they look. I don't like the way they smell. I don't like the way they dress. I don't like the way they talk. I don't like how they don't speak English or, or anything like that. Is there anyone like that that you would not want to welcome into this church or into, this, into, into your life, even just as a friend? By the way, just uh, aside, the nations have come to America. Uh, many of us are, are the beneficiaries of, of our relatives coming to America. But the, the nations didn't stop coming to America. They are still coming to America. And we need to reach everyone with the gospel. All people should be welcomed by Christians. All people should have the opportunity to survive relationally and thrive spiritually among us. No one who sincerely wants to belong should be excluded. Not from our worship gatherings, not from our lives. But I know the depths of my own heart. And I'll take a wild chance that you might be a little bit like me. I make distinctions. I'm partial. I insulate myself. I shut myself off from possible relationships with neighbors and coworkers and classmates. We build these invisible color barriers, ethnicity barriers, economic barriers, ethnic barriers, lifestyle barriers. The blood-bought bride of Christ needs a wake-up call. She doesn't even know she's asleep. One big barrier to what Jesus wants for his church is the sin of partiality. When we think of God's attributes, we think of the big, uh, grand, sweeping attributes like holiness and justice and love and kindness and mercy and grace. But how often do we think that not being partial is one of God's attributes. Impartiality. Favoritism is what we do. Exclusion is what we do. Us showing by our attitudes and actions that there are certain people that we do not think God can save. James begins in, in chapter 2, verse 1, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ as some translations put it in our glorious lord jesus christ with an attitude of personal favoritism god's saying you don't determine who's in or who's out let me set a little context here for james all of chapter one most of chapter one god is showing 
through James the importance of putting God's word into practice. We're to be doers of the word, not just hearers only. And so the verses in chapter 1, especially the last part of the chapter, verses 19 through 27, are the foundation upon everything else in James's letter. We've got to remember that. In each of the following sections of James, he is discussing the application of the word of God to a specific aspect of life. So in our passage for today, verses 1 through 13, he is showing how partiality or discrimination violates the word of God. James starts by calling his readers, my brethren. He loves them, he is close to them, he is speaking out of love, and out of that love as a fellow believer and brother in Christ. In the book of James, he uses the extended phrase, my beloved brethren, 15 times. He loves the people he's writing to. He says, my brethren, don't hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to think with me for a moment about that beautiful phrase, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. More literally, that, that phrase reads, our Lord Jesus Christ of the glory. Perhaps referring to God's Shekinah glory. I want you to dwell with me on this statement just for a moment. Our glorious Lord Jesus Christ or our Lord Jesus Christ of the glory. James gets heat because he only mentions Jesus' name twice in his letter. But when he did it, he did it upright. He knew how to to say Jesus' name. Our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, don't get hardened to that title. Don't get hardened to that name. Our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. He's the Lord of glory. He is the Lord. He is is Jesus, the Savior. He is the Christ, the Deliverer. As people saved by the immeasurable grace of God, we ought to to revel in, in His name. The name of Jesus. The name which is above every name. The name at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Think with me about our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. God's blessings in Christ are showered upon us. Like Niagara Falls. Like the waters of the, of the Tennessee rivers that I went down in an inner tube just flowing over and over. God's grace accepts us in Christ. God accepts us in Christ. Everyone who comes to to Him is welcome to Him. He he initiates towards us. He, He unconditionally commits to us our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Don't get hardened to that name. Tim Keller said that grace creates people who are committed to bless the world through their work. He's talking about generous grace rather than stingy superiority where we think that we're better than others. This is what James is talking about. He begins with a prohibition. He's basically saying, stop showing favoritism. Stop doing that. The Greek words are emphatic. It's present tense. It's imperative. It's used to forbid an action that is already going on. He's not saying, hey, in case you're tempted to show partiality, he's saying, stop it. 
He's saying, stop doing that. It wasn't just them. It's me too. They were apparently guilty of practicing discrimination in that church. From the context, verse 6, he says, you have, you have dishonored, you have insulted the poor man. So stop showing favoritism, James says. The point he's making is that partiality is not consistent with faith in Christ. It's not consistent with faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't fit. The emphasis on Christ as glorious heightens the inconsistency. We allow favoritism to be associated with faith in such an exalted person as Christ. We lie and we're working against the truth. We cannot hold faith in Christ who is the very presence and glory of God and be partial at the same time. It's inconsistent. Now Jesus was impartial. You can see it by his humble birth. You can see it by his genealogy. There are people in Jesus' genealogy you wouldn't hang out with. You wouldn't invite them over for dinner. His, his family, his, his upbringing in Nazareth, his, his willingness to minister to um, people in Samaria and, and, and Galilee. It's regions that were held in contempt by the Jewish leaders. Here's Jesus, the, the glory and the image of God. He showed no favoritism. It made no difference to Jesus whether he was talking and speaking to a wealthy Jewish leader or a beggar on the street, to a virtuous woman or a prostitute, a high priest or a common worshiper, handsome, ugly, educated, uneducated, ignorant, religious, irreligious, law-abiding citizen or criminal. It didn't matter to Jesus. He was most concerned with the condition of a person's soul. That's got to be our concern. We should not be so concerned about what they're doing on the outside of what they look like. We should be concerned about where their soul stands with God. Personal favoritism. That, that phrase literally means lifting up someone's face. It's the idea of judging only by appearance. And on that basis, giving special favor and respect. To judge purely on a superficial level without consideration of the person's true merits or their character. By the way, this word and it's related, the verbs and noun that are related to it are found only in Christian writings. And the reason why is because this was partiality and exclusion and discrimination was accepted in all the other cultures and to many cultures today. Even in our culture. Even in our Christian subculture. It is widely accepted. It is widely okay in the Christian subculture to be bigoted towards certain races, to even laugh and joke about it. I've done it too many times. Lifting up someone's face, judging purely on the superficial. We are not to say that a person is not worthy to be in Christ's church or that they have sinned too much. God is not partial. His elect come from all walks of life. So in verses 2 through 4, James comes up with this hypothetical situation about a rich man and a poor man. He pictures two men entering into the assembly of Christians. The first one is wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. 
But the gold ring literally means gold-fingered. It was common for, for rich people in those days to wear more than one ring. Maybe this guy had a ring on every finger. The Roman statesman Seneca said, We adorn our fingers with rings, and we distribute gems on every joint. Now, it must have been common in some churches because the second century church father Clement of Alexandria told Christians to wear not more than one ring and the one ring they did wear should depict a dove or a fish or an anchor or other Christian symbol. Rich man walks in in sharp contrast. A a poor man in shabby clothing walks in. That word for shabby really means dirty or filthy. Literally, he's a beggar that lives on the streets. Now, some early Christians were were well off. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and the Ethiopian eunuch and the Roman centurion Cornelius and Sergius Paulus and Lydia, the seller of purple fabrics and others. But most early converts to Christianity were dirt poor. And if they weren't poor when they became a Christian, they soon became poor as they were kicked out of their homes and, and lost their jobs because of the intense hatred of fellow Jews toward Christians. In AD 178, the Roman philosopher uh, Celsus attacked Christians because many were poor. They were uneducated. He severely criticized their commonness. He saw them as vulgar. Here's what he wrote about them. They're like a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nests. Or frogs holding a symposium amid a swamp. Or worms in a convention in a corner of mud. The rich man, the poor man. The rich man is treated well, the poor man is treated poorly. In both instances, the sin is partiality. Making distinctions among yourselves by showing special favor to the well-dressed man and showing contempt for the poor man. Take note of this, though. There is one kind of preferential treatment that God allows, that God encourages you to engage in. The only kind of preferential treatment that the Lord honors is the kind where humility of mind makes us regard others as more important than ourselves. It's found in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. That sort of unselfish partiality favors the needs of others above your own, their welfare and well-being above yours. God's happy with that. You can be partial in that way. Verse 5, James basically says there's all sorts of reasons why we shouldn't show favoritism. Verses 5 through 11, he gives two arguments against it. The first is what I would call a social argument. He talks about a believer's poverty in the eyes of the world, but they're rich in faith. They're heirs of the kingdom. He's indicating that social snobbery of the world is short-sighted and superficial. The favoritism that James' readers were engaged in was the same shallow kind of evaluation. Now, he's not saying that all poor people are rich in faith. He's not saying that the rich can't get saved. Basically, he's not saying that it's bad to be rich or good to be poor. He's just making a point, and he's using two different kinds of people as an example, and it would be one that they would understand. Verse 6, in contrast to God's treatment of the poor, James' readers had treated them poorly. God had chosen them, but they had insulted them. And the craziness of their choices is shown in three, three pointed questions. 
The first question is, aren't the rich exploiting you? It describes this brutal and tyrannical deprivation of of their God-given rights, the oppression of the poor and the widow and the stranger. Second question, aren't the rich dragging you into court? Forcibly dragging you into court? Treating you badly and unjustly? And then verse 7, the third question, aren't the rich slandering the, the, the honorable name of Christ, the noble name of Christ? Christ's name is excellent. Christ's name is noble. It is honorable. He says, it's the name by which you were called. In those days, you were dedicated to God by God's name being called over you, spoken over you, indicated that you belong to God. Christians bear the worthy name of Christ, indicating that they are his people. Show favoritism to those who blaspheme the name of Christ is wrong. Verse 8, James also gives the moral argument against favoritism. The commandment to love your neighbor as yourself is described as the royal law, not because it's just a high and, and uh, lofty uh, law, but it, it, it overlooks, love overlooks the distinctions like wealth and quality of clothing and color of skin and so on and so forth. Verse 9, there's a negative reason why you shouldn't show favoritism. It's very clear. It's sin. You shouldn't do it because it's sin. Most Christians I know don't want to sin. They don't say, hey, I, I'm planning on sinning today. Um, would you like to come over and, and join me? You know, that doesn't usually happen with most Christians I know. Now, sure, there's, there's exceptions to the rule. But most people that, that have been saved by grace through faith in Christ are like, I want to please God. So, when God exposes something like this to our hearts and, and we realize that at times we are really maybe bigoted or, or judgmental or showing favoritism or very partial, most Christians I know would say, wow, I'm not going to do that anymore. By God's strength, I don't, I don't want to do that. That's what James wants his, his people to, to say. He's like, this is sin. And, and if you do this, you're, you'll be convicted as lawbreakers. You're breaking the supreme law of love for your neighbor. Verse 10, he shows how it makes you a lawbreaker. He goes, you commit one act of sin, you're done. Oh, so you don't murder, but you commit adultery or vice versa. Well, you're you're guilty either way. If you view it like that, then even one act of favoritism, even one act of partiality is significant. One sin is significant. I know how easy it is to hold attitudes and opinions about people that are not Christ-like. How easy is it for Christians to say, I'm right and everybody else is wrong, and either I'm going to try to fix them or I will shun them. We play the they and the them game. They need to change. They are wrong. I don't like them. They're not my favorite. And you know how... We like to play favorites. Old ruts are hard to get out of, too. So we look down upon people. We take advantage of them. We disdain them. We reject them. And if it's not love, what can you call it? We really need to love everyone enough to engage relationally and with the gospel. People of different ethnic backgrounds, people of different persuasions, of different races, different financial standing. 
that are not fully welcomed into Christian fellowships? That ought not to be. I've had a, a little bit of a hard time as I looked at the, at the census uh, demographics for the city of Orange just from the 2006 census. We are located in a city with 50% Caucasian. But the disconnect for me is we are a church that is primarily Caucasian. I don't know what's wrong with that, but I know something's wrong with that because we're not reflecting the community in which we live. There can only be a couple, a couple options, really. And let me just, I'll be the first one to admit that I am guilty of, of partiality when it comes to what people look like, how much money they make, what kind of car they drive, how they, how they live their life, and all the other things that we make distinctions about. Jesus brings us to repentance. We looked at that for several weeks. Jesus uh, brings us to repentance and he frees us from pride. I love how God taught Peter a huge lesson around this same idea. And I think it's one that God wants to teach us as well. Go with me to Acts chapter 10. I want you to see something there that, that, that God showed Peter. You know, Peter was blind to it. The, the early church wasn't aware of it. It, and it wasn't necessarily that they had all these evil motives, but they were wired. It, it was ingrained culturally in them to show partiality. I think the same is true with a lot of Christians today. It's been ingrained so culturally that we don't even realize it's sin and that it's against God and His Word. I want you to go to Acts 10. I'll call this uh, Peter and the Italians. Because at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, so he was, a, he was over a hundred soldiers, of what was known as the Italian cohort. He was devout, he feared God with his whole household, he gave alms generously to the people, he prayed continually to God, but he wasn't a Jew. And he has a vision from an angel of God who comes to him and calls him by name. And then he tells him, I need you to send to Joppa to go get a guy named Simon, Simon Peter, who's staying at Simon the Tanner's house. Bring him to your place. Now, it's really interesting. This guy was going to get the gospel. And, and the angel could have preached the gospel to him. But he didn't. Because there was something bigger going on. God was going to have Peter talk to one man and the, the ripples would be exponential because from this moment on, the Gentiles would hear the gospel. But what had happened? All the Jews that were becoming Christians thought that you had to become a Jew to become a Christian. And so a guy like Cornelius would need to first become a Jew and then become a Christian. Now God had never said that. God had never commanded that. God had never instructed that. He said that all the nations would hear. He said that even in the Old Testament, that the Gentiles would receive the light of the gospel. So what went wrong? It was so culturally, uh, culturally ingrained in, in the Jewish mindset that they thought that they couldn't engage, that the Gentiles were unworthy. It was unlawful to go into a Gentile's house. Now he's Peter. By the way, Cornelius sends the group to go get Peter. As the group is going, 
Peter goes up on the roof about midday, and he, he's, they're going to serve food for him because he's, he's tired, uh, hungry, and he gets a vision from God. It's a crazy vision. There's this huge like sheet thing coming out of the, the sky filled with all sorts of unclean animals that Jews aren't supposed to eat. And what he hears is, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. So God is setting the table for something that Peter's saying no. And that's what Peter does. He goes, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. I'm not going to do it. He gets this vision three times. God says what God has cleansed no longer consider unclean. And so uh, the thing goes back up into the sky and he's thinking about this and he's wondering and there's a knock on the door. And it's Cornelius's people. It's the Italians that are that are coming to get Peter. And the Spirit says to Peter, Acts chapter 10, verse 19, he's pondering the vision. The Spirit says to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So he gets a clear word from God of what to do. Okay. So the group comes to the door. He's... He's explaining, yeah, I'm Peter. I'm the one you're looking for. And, and they say, well, you're going to come to Cornelius' house and hear what, we're going to hear what you have to say. Total alley-oop for the gospel. I mean, this is awesome. He's going to be preaching the gospel and it's, they're all going to be saying, please tell us. Wouldn't that be awesome if that's how it was for us every time we wanted to share the gospel, right? And um, he, he brings them into his house to be his guests. Not a bad thing. He's not in trouble with the Jews yet. But the next day, he goes with them, and he basically goes into Cornelius' house. Now he's in trouble. A Jew didn't do that. In fact, Peter says, you yourselves know, can you believe this? You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. God never said that. This was the scribes and the Pharisees' junk. This was not God's idea. He says, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. But do you notice what he's saying to him? Like, hey, you guys, I, I would never hang out with you. You know what? I, I, I would never even step foot in your house. But God says I should. So th- th- they must feel better now. <laughs> what happened? God set the table. He called Peter to engage those that Peter considered unworthy. Peter said no. He rejected the truth. It's an uncomfortable truth, right? It's inconvenient. It's unconventional. And God overruled him. The truth reigned. And Peter changed. He accepted the truth. He went. And he learned something. He learned that all people are welcome to God. That God is not one to show partiality. I will never forget the day that I was with my friend Pablo Flores, a church planter in Mexico. And he was preaching this passage. And he said... I always hated Germans. Sorry if you're a German. I'm not. Italian, I told you that already. He goes, I always hated Germans because I heard about what they did. He just heard the story about Hitler and all that, and he hated them. And he, and, and he said, God convicted me of my sin of hating Germans. And he had to repent of his sin. He was preaching from this passage. Here's what Peter said. I understand Verse 34, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. The word that he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. He says, you're aware of what happened? 
He tells of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And then he said in verse 42, And he commanded us, here's Peter coming clean, to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And as he was speaking, the Holy Spirit falls upon Cornelius and his family and they get saved. They become believers in Jesus. So Peter's like, well, I guess we're going to baptize him then. He wasn't making them Jews. Now, if this was the end of the story, you'd go, great, this, it's awesome. It's, it's wonderful. Because Peter learned that all are welcome to God, but that's not the end of the story. Peter had to go home and tell his friends, had to go home and tell the church what he had done. You go into chapter 11, you're like, wow, this is a great thing that had happened, but now he's got to go tell the church. And the church wasn't excited about this. They heard the Gentiles received the word of God. They, people criticize him. You, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them? Peter explains what's going on. So he goes through the whole story. If God repeats something in the Bible more than once, well, first of all, if he says it once, listen up. But if he says it more than once, really listen up. This story is repeated. And it's also repeated again in Acts chapter 15. Peter got into big trouble for doing this, but he did not wilt. He did not say, oh, you know, you guys are right. What was I thinking? He says, look, I was, I was told by God what, what I have called clean don't call unclean he says if god gave them the same gift that we got when we received jesus who was i to stand in god's way love that line who was i to stand in god's way who are we i love their response they say well to the gentiles also god has granted repentance that leads to life they fell silent they glorified god they said we're wrong we're going to change our ways and from that point on you and me were the beneficiaries because gentiles if you're not a jew you were out gentiles now got to hear the gospel the church exploded now, there was an issue that came up in Acts 15. It's a whole other story, but they had to give them some rules because people were like, no, 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 they got to they, they become Jews. No, they don't. Now, I want you to go back to James chapter 2. Just look real briefly with me at, at uh, verse 12 and 13. James concludes with an urgent exhortation and a warning. He says, So speak and so act as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Now, the word so is in here twice. It's a repetition that's very emphatic. And it serves to distribute the emphasis over both words. Basically, you are, continue to, you are to continue to speak and you are continue to live in light of the fact that you're going to be judged by God. So yes, you'll be judged by your bigotry. Yes, you'll be judged by your partiality, for your partiality. He says in verse 13, judgment without mercy will be the lot of the unmerciful. Mercy should identify the regenerate person. If you've received mercy, you should be the most merciful person on your block. Everyone should know how merciful you are and how accepting you are and how loving you are towards everyone. 
And that doesn't mean that you're, that you're celebrating sin. It doesn't mean that you're condoning sin. But it doesn't mean that you're condemning people either. I've noticed something in my own life. The things I condemn people for are the things I condemn myself for. If we condemn ourselves, we're going to find someone else to condemn for the same things. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I just want to ask you a couple questions. Knowing that the gospel, as one writer put it, is the great leveler. It's available with absolute equality to everyone who believes in the Savior. Does your heart break? And are your feet ready to go anywhere God sends you to reach anyone and everyone in your own backyard or across the the globe? What will it take to foster a real, ongoing commitment to this community to engage relationally and with the gospel for the glory of God? What will it take for God to open up our eyes to the desperate need of people without Christ? For the gospel lived, the gospel shown by people who want what God wants. I think it's going to take several things, and I will give them to you quickly, and then in a moment the uh, worship team will come up. But let me just say, first of all, it's going to, the word, write down the word all. It's going, to, it's going to take us knowing that the absolute truth is all people need to hear the gospel, that we can't profile certain people, oh, because I don't like them, or they're living on a different side of town, or I don't like the way they act, or I don't like the way they talk, or I don't like the way they eat, or whatever. Our culture's mindset is we get what we deserve. So if someone doesn't have much or they're a certain way, well, we're quick to judge. We focus on justice for ourselves rather than justice for others. All people need to hear the gospel. They need, second thing is they need to be engaged. Engaged. We've got to engage everyone. True love in action because the gospel fosters multi-ministry, multi-ethnic, multi-generational We've got to do it intentionally. All people need to be engaged intentionally. We've got to initiate risk. We've got to dependently pray and trust God and intentionally engage with people. The fourth thing I'll give you is that we've got to have open hearts. I love the way Paul says, open, open wide your hearts. We've got to have open hearts. That's what, that's what Peter was like. He's like, okay, God said it. I'm going to be open to it. Do you think it was uncomfortable? Of course. All people need to be engaged intentionally by people with open hearts. And, and the fifth thing is they've got to be unwavering hearts. You know, when Peter had to go talk to the church, he didn't say, oh, yeah, you're right, I'm wrong. He stood boldly and told them the truth. We've got to be unwavering until Jesus returns. You might notice that that's A-E-I-O and you, but I'm going to give you why. Usually it's sometimes why. I say always why. It always will take you, who's a Christian, to be engaged in this process. It will take you deciding and resolving and breaking free from the barriers that you have set up or that you inherited or that's just part of the culture. Spent some time at a place called World, World Relief um, in Atlanta where they deal with... Uh, um, helping refugees get engaged in America. And uh, they gave us this FBI case file and 
said, look through this and who would you, if you were the FBI guy, who would you let into America? And the prostitute, the drug dealer, uh, which, one would you, which one would you choose? And, you know, then there's the little old lady that hasn't heard a flea, you know, and I start thinking, let's say all these people showed up at Grace. pray lord thank you for your grace lord thank you that that your your truth reigns lord thank you that um that you are lord we want to be the hands and feet of jesus but we must remember what happened to your hands and feet lord jesus that not everyone will love it when we begin to break down barriers to the gospel but we're going to trust you, Lord, to engage people intentionally with unwavering hearts until you return so that you would grow your church, that you, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, would be pleased. Pray in your name, amen. You know. I-